Uh, and then, if I could ask you to return in your Bible to the letter, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, this, uh, I think it's always an exciting morning as a church when we begin a new series. And uh, that's what we're doing this morning. We're beginning a brand new series in Paul's letter to the Galatians. And uh, this morning I've called this message, It's All About Grace, which gives you a little bit of a hint about not only this morning, but this whole letter its theme. It is all about grace, as we're going to begin to see today. But I want to begin this morning with uh, just a few diagnostic questions, just to determine which of us in the room this series is really aimed at. Okay, so here's a few questions, and see if, see if you answer yes to any of them. Do you ever feel like sometimes you're more acceptable to God than at other times? Do you ever feel like you deserve more from God than you're getting? Do you ever feel like God is out to get you? Or do you ever feel superior to other Christians or inferior to other Christians? Do you ever find yourself behaving one way with one group of people and then in quite a different way with other people? Do you hope that people will notice all of the good that you're doing? Are you unwilling to own up to the wrong that you do? Do you ever feel like you're on a spiritual treadmill struggling to keep up with the other Christians around you? Do you ever feel a deep desire to grow as a Christian, but feel powerless to do so? Do you ever wonder if salvation is really as simple as just putting your faith in Jesus? And have you ever thought about taking just a few extra security measures, maybe a religious ceremony here, a resolve to keep some more rules over there, as a safety net to ensure that you're really saved? If you've answered yes to any of those questions, then let me, let me welcome you this morning to the letter of Galatians. This is a letter written to address you and me and all of these kinds of common fears and concerns and problems. But first of all, let me set the scene. Galatians is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, letter in the whole of the New Testament written around AD 50, only about 15 or 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, by the Apostle Paul, not just to one local church, it wasn't just one Galatian church, but it was a group of churches in the southern region of the Roman province of Galatia. And so picture then this young, fledgling group of churches full of predominantly brand new, wet-behind-the-ear Christians. They've not been Christians for very long at all, and already a major crisis has hit them. One of the worst crises in all of the New Testament. Now, Paul and Barnabas, they, they, this church, they had some good founders. Paul and Barnabas played a major role in founding these churches. But no so sooner had the two of them gone on their way and carried on with their missionary journey than false teachers had swooped in to, Paul tells us in the letter, to trouble and unsettle the Galatian Christians, teaching them an entirely different gospel. Well, how could this happen? How can this happen so soon in the life of a new church? Well, I think part of the problem was that at first glance, this different gospel didn't look that different to the real gospel that they'd received from Paul. It actually sounded a lot like Paul's gospel. It just had some upgrades. 
it had some additions. You know when you go and buy something from somewhere, maybe you go and buy a new car, and this, you, you kind of know what you want. You know, you, I want a car, it's got to drive me places. But then the salesman is trying to offer you upgrades. Uh, and there's, of course there's hidden costs as well, but they're trying to tell you you need all of the, the mod cons. Well, that's kind of what was happening here with this, this different gospel. They were offering upgrades. It wasn't gospel minus, but gospel plus. And its teachers were likely suggesting that it was an improvement to the gospel of Paul. Now, we're going to explore much more of what they were teaching as we go through the letter. But in essence, these new visitors were insisting that a person couldn't be completely saved simply by faith in Jesus, but only through faith plus keeping some of the law of Moses, particularly faith plus circumcision. We find the very same brand of false teaching reported in Acts 15, where we read Acts 15 verse 1, some men, perhaps the very same men it could be, who had been causing problems in Galatia, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And most concerning of all, the Galatians were beginning to buy into this false teaching that was being sold to them. They were beginning to doubt the authenticity and the completeness of Paul's simple, all-of-grace gospel. Now, whether the Galatians realized how serious this was or not, I don't know. I don't know if they realized how serious a change of direction it was. But Paul certainly recognized that these fledgling churches were in deadly peril. And they were in danger of all out abandoning the, the one true saving gospel. Eternal destinies were at stake and were hanging in the balance. Well, just before we get on to Paul's solution, it's helpful to address the fact that we are not so very different from the Galatians. We might look on and think, well, how could they possibly consider adding works to grace and adding human effort to the gospel? Why would they do something so foolish? But I think in only slightly more subtle ways, the same battle wars on in all of our hearts in the ways that we think about and relate to God on a day-to-day -day basis as well. How many of us could relate to one or more of the questions that I just sort of ran through there at the beginning? I guess pretty much all of us at various times can relate to at least some of those struggles. I, I know I do. The thing is, I, I didn't make up those questions. I picked them out from various articles I found that are there to help diagnose legalism. So if you said yes to any of those questions, you have a little hint of, at least a hint of legalism still running through your heart, as I do. How many of us, just to pick out one more example, find ourselves, even against our better judgment, we know we shouldn't do this, but we imagine that God's favor really does depend somewhat each day on our performance. Whether it's thinking that God is likely to bless us and do good to us on the days when we had a really good devotional time in the morning. The real question is not do we have this tendency, we do. The real question is what is the medicine that we need to keep on taking each day to wage war against this in our hearts? What is God's remedy? Not just for recovering legalists 2,000 years ago in Galatia. What is his remedy for the recovering legalist who lives right here in my heart and your heart today? Well, the answer is this letter. God's remedy is this letter. 
Or, or more precisely, God's remedy is the one true gospel of grace that is stored up so richly in this letter. I hope, I hope I'm beginning to already convince you. I know you don't need convincing, but, but anyway, I want to convince you of the, the worthwhileness of studying this letter together. I hope this is already leaving us freshly eager to get into this new series. But just before we start reading the letter now, let me just share with you a couple more endorsements for it. Uh, This time from church history, which again testify to its liberating power. Uh, So many Christians have, have called Galatians the Magna Carta of Christian liberty and have identified it as being the major catalyst in the Reformation back in the 16th century. when, If you know about the Reformation, it's when the truth of God's word, the gospel itself, was recovered in a massive way. Well, Galatians played a huge part. Martin Luther, the, the father of the Reformation, loved Galatians, and he considered it to be the best of all books. He even compared, I love this, he even compared his love for this book, Galatians, with his love for his wife, Catherine. Luther said, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. To it, I am, as it were, in wedlock. It is my Catherine. Now, at first, I wondered if she might be a little bit upset about that. Would I put that in my Valentine's card to Lizzie? I don't know. But then I thought, perhaps that's quite a compliment for a husband to tell his wife, I love you as much as I love my favorite book of the Bible. So I think that's actually legit, and I might try it. Uh, Philip Ryken then writes, here's another historical endorsement, about how then, he says, through Martin Luther, the book of Galatians taught the same lesson to the great Puritan preacher John Bunyan. In Bunyan's spiritual autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, which is a wonderful book, by the way, Bunyan describes how a battered old copy of Luther's commentary on Galatians came into his possession. He was surprised how old the book was, but he was even more surprised when he read it. He wrote, I found my condition in his experience, so largely and profoundly handled as if his book had been written out of my heart. I do prefer this book of Mr. Luther upon the Galatians, accepting the Holy Bible, before all the books that ever I have seen. And then Phil Riken, who was recording that, then goes on to ask the question, why does this epistle have such a liberating influence? Because the church is always full of recovering Pharisees who need to receive the gospel again as if for the very first time. Whenever the church has understood this gospel message, Galatians has brought life and freedom to recovering Pharisees. This letter is all about the Saving, God-saving, pardoning, liberating, life-transforming grace for recovering Pharisees, for recovering legalists like you and I. If you could bottle Galatians, they would have to put a label on it, a warning label that says, warning 100% grace. How kind of the Lord then to give us the time and the space over these coming months to to slowly sip it together and to drink down deeply of it from week to week as we come around God's word, as we're doing now. Now, the real temptation for me this morning is to run away with myself and give too many spoilers about what's to come up in the book, but I'm going to resist that. Instead, in the remaining time that we've got, I just want to be faithful to open up Paul's initial greeting 
at the start of this letter, in the first five verses, uh, in the hope that this will whet our appetites some more and prepare our hearts for all that there is to follow. So here we are then, beginning in verse 1. Let's begin our journey through Galatians together. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Like a great symphony, all of the the clues, the melodies to come are contained in seed form in this introduction. With the two most prominent themes here being, and these are our two headings for this morning, Paul's apostleship and Paul's gospel. It become clear why those two things are so important. First of all, Paul's apostleship. Paul begins this letter by reminding his readers of who he is, that he is an apostle of Christ, that he is one of a select few people commissioned by the risen Jesus himself. Uh, This word apostle, I guess it's not new to many of us, but it literally means one who is sent. A delegate or an ambassador sent by someone important who carries with them the authority to speak on behalf of the person that sent them. Now, this actually isn't unusual for Paul to start a letter by mentioning that he is an apostle. What is unusual is the degree to which he emphasizes it here in this letter. Usually he begins a letter by saying something like, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and then he sort of gets on with his greeting. But here he says much more. Paul, have a look again, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. It's that, it's that big hyphenated bit that's stuck on there that is unusual and therefore most significant. So why does he do this? Is this just some kind of power struggle now between Paul and these false teachers that have arrived in Galatia? Is this about personal vanity? Paul wants to remind them, do you know I'm very important? Is Paul just concerned about being in charge? No, it's nothing like that. I trust you know that. In fact, Paul doesn't even have any kind of leadership position in the Galatian churches. Remember, he's already off somewhere else preaching the gospel with Barnabas. He's not trying to assert his leadership so much as his credentials as a genuine messenger of Christ. In reminding them of his apostleship, really he's reminding them of the authenticity of his message. Because when you think about it, who is to say whose gospel is the right one? Who is to say that Paul's gospel of grace alone is truer and more right than the this, this, this new gospel of grace plus law and circumcision. Who's to say which one is the right one? That undoubtedly was part of the false teacher's argument. Maybe they were saying, why listen to Paul anyway? It's not very impressive. He, he's not even one of the original 12 apostles. He's just appointed himself and is spouting off his own ideas. He's a bit radical. Don't listen to his overly simplistic message about grace. No, no, no. Listen to our more sophisticated gospel that we have for you. Again, 
Who is to say whose gospel is the right one? Well, only God himself can say. And so Paul reminds them here at the outset that he got his gospel message and his commission to be its messenger from God himself. No human being, not even one of the other apostles, made him an apostle or gave him his message. No mere man commissioned him. He says, not from men, not through man, but the risen Lord Jesus commissioned Paul on the Damascus Road. Jesus Christ and God the Father divinely appointed him as an apostle and divinely entrusted him with his message. The very first verse of this letter then is important. It is a, it's a mic drop moment. We so often just breeze over, don't we, the first, the first verse or two of a letter, but this, this is profound. And Paul will return to this theme later on in the letter, but his credentials as an apostle are so important as he begins to speak to the Galatians because they confirm that he has indeed faithfully taught Christ's message with Christ's authority. Paul's gospel of grace was straight from the lips of Jesus. But does this still have any relevance in 21st century Britain? Is this just kind of historical interest but nothing more? Are Paul's credentials still important to think about today? Well, I think the answer is a resounding yes. Because even 2,000 years on, there are still people, even those who would call themselves Christians, who try to question the absolute truthfulness of God's word and who, que and who question the infallible nature of the apostles' message. Philip Ryken again says Paul's opponents said that his gospel was not God's word to man, but man's word about God. And skeptics make the same argument today. They accuse Paul of Tarsus of inventing Christianity. They say that Jesus of Nazareth was a teacher of love and a model of sacrifice, but then Paul came along with all his complicated Greek concepts and turned Christ into Christianity. I wonder if you ever come across that kind of critique of Christianity. Maybe someone's raised it with you, or certainly if, you, if you're watching stuff on the internet, you quickly come across these kind of arguments. They're still commonly made today. That the Bible is just a flawed record of man's search for God. That Paul had his view, but we now take a different view, and that's okay because we now know more than he did. We're more enlightened than Paul was. As one writer famously put it, get this, at the start of his commentary he was writing on Romans, he wrote, sometimes I think Paul is wrong, and I have ventured to say so. I would venture that that is not a very helpful commentary. <laughs> that is unacceptable. Not, just, uh, not to mention the fact it's just so arrogant. The very first verse of Galatians overturns and condemns that approach to the Bible. For God has uniquely and definitively spoken through his apostles. Which means, as John Stott writes in a much better Galatians commentary, we may not exalt our opinions over theirs or claim that our authority is as great as theirs. Speaking of the apostles... For their opinions and authority are Christ's. If we would bow to his authority, we must therefore bow to theirs. 
As he himself, Jesus himself said, he who receives you, speaking to his disciples, receives me. To refuse to accept God's, uh, to refuse to accept Paul's message of grace or any other part of what he and the other apostles teach is to refuse the words that God himself has written and spoken to us. We, we literally could not choose to do anything more foolish or perilous than that. The apostles' gospel is God's gospel, the only true gospel. But wonderfully, too, it it is a far better message than any other message. It is a far more liberating gospel than any man-made gospel. I love that, that the true gospel is also the best gospel. And that is what Paul then begins to lay out and make clear to the Galatians and to us in the second half of his opening greeting. So having reminded them of his apostleship, he now moves on to remind them of what his gospel is. And it's in this short but impressively rich summary. So second heading this morning, Paul's gospel, verses 3 to 5. And we see here, his gospel is made up of four links in a chain. Four parts. It is a gospel that, as we're going to see, promises grace and peace through the sacrifice of Jesus, according to the will of our God and Father, and all to the glory of God. And every one of those four elements is important because each one of those elements challenges the the false Jesus plus law, grace plus human effort gospel that is infiltrating the churches in Galatia. First of all, then, Paul's gospel, God's gospel, the true and best gospel, promises grace and peace. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins by wishing, praying, that they would experience grace and peace. Now, it's said that the ancient Greeks used to wish their friends good health when they wrote to them. That's why they put it perhaps in their uh, birthday cards or letters that they'd write. They'd wish wish their friends good health. Or when they met them in the street, they'd say, good health to you. And today, many people will still think there is no gift more precious than wishing good health and maybe some money too on their friends and family. But Paul desires and prays for something far better for the Galatians here, for God to continue to bestow his grace and peace upon them. And he does this, of course, in so many of his letters. And again, we can get used to that and read over that. But this isn't just mere platitudes and pleasantries. It's not just a polite way to begin a letter Really, these two words summarize Paul's gospel. They point to the two uniquely precious blessings that the gospel alone can give us. Grace is a word that describes God's unmerited favor towards us. His limitless, unreserved kindness towards sinners. It's a word that speaks of the very source of our salvation, of all that God has given us in Christ, none of which we could ever earn or repay. And then peace refers to the relationship that is is so amazingly established between God and sinners as a result of his grace to us for all who believe the good news about Jesus. So grace is, if you like, the source of our salvation. Peace is the outcome. Both of these blessings and how we receive them are perfectly summed up by Paul himself in Romans 5, verse 1 and 2, when he says, 
Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You notice there, and you notice at the beginning of Galatians as well, there is no mention of works playing any part. No mention of works. Both grace and peace are given solely through faith in Jesus. But we all do it, don't we? We all so easily drift off in our thinking and in our behaving, acting again, just gradually and subtly, as if our peace with God, and as if the promise of his grace to us does surely still depend in some way on how good we've been or on how well we're doing. And when we do that, when that drift happens, it it either inevitably puffs us up in pride in those uh, maybe rarer moments when we feel like, yeah, I'm doing okay, or it crushes us with despair because we know only too well our sins and failings. That's what happens to us when we start again to believe a false gospel. And we're all prone to doing that, I think, believing a false gospel each and every day. That's the danger that the Galatians are in. But their situation, as I've said, is far worse because they're contemplating replacing this gospel of grace entirely. They are considering signing up to something that will ultimately rob them of this grace and peace that Paul is wishing upon them. And so Paul reminds them, even in his greeting, grace and peace belong to you in abundance already. You don't need to add anything to receive grace and peace in all their fullness because the real gospel promises them fully and completely. Secondly, they are promised to us through the sacrifice of Jesus. Here is how grace and peace from God can be ours in unending abundance through the sacrifice of Jesus. Verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Christ died. And most historians will will back us on that and accept that. Everybody kind of knows that. There was a Jesus and he died. But only the gospel tells us why. Only the gospel tells us that it wasn't a mere accident or an unfortunate turn of events, nor was it simply a display of love or an act of heroism. Paul's words here couldn't be plainer. Christ gave himself for us. And for us is substitutionary language, someone standing in our place. Jesus deliberately laid down his life in our place as our sacrifice for our sins. This is how grace and peace have come to us. And so in spite of the claims of some modern writers who want to suggest that God punishing his son in our place is akin to cosmic child abuse, the Bible knows of no other gospel than the one where the Son of God willingly took the punishment upon himself for our sins. This is the only gospel where he endured sin's penalty in our place and took upon himself the death that we deserved. And so he paid in full the infinite debt we owed. And he did it, Paul then goes on to remind the Galatians here, to deliver us from the present evil age. That that word deliver, that is rescue language through and through. 
It's the same word used in the book of Acts to describe, uh, they're talking back and talking about the, the rescue of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. It's the same word. The same word that talks of the rescue of Peter from prison. The rescue, again, of Peter from Herod, a wicked ruler. And then the rescue of Paul from an infuriated mob about to lynch him. This is rescue, deliverance. The gospel is a rescue from start to finish, through and through. The gospel is Christ delivering us. It is not just a helping hand or a leg up or a spiritual aid. It's not just like one of those electric bicycles, which actually I would quite like because I'm a little bit lazy. You know the ones where the motor kicks in when the going gets tough, when maybe there's a hill or you get a little bit tired? It's not one of those. Imagine for a moment coming across someone drowning in the ocean. The gospel is not an emergency swimming lesson or a book that you throw out to them on breaststroke. The gospel is a lifeboat with a rope. The gospel is the Son of God jumping down into the water himself to pull us up out of the deadly depths. If there is one thing that Christ's sacrifice can teach us, it is how impossible it would be to rescue ourselves or pay even the smallest amount for our own sins. Salvation is all of grace. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it. We can't work at it. We cannot add to it. Because if our deliverance, if our rescue depends on nothing less than the very blood of God's own Son, Nothing less than, as one writer puts it, God gathering up all of our sins, putting them on his own shoulders and paying for them with his death, then what possible supplement, however small, could you or I add to that salvation? What could we add to this? No wonder then that Martin Luther once described these words of Paul in verse 4 as the very thunderclaps from heaven against all forms of self-righteousness. Because once we've seen that Christ gave himself to deliver us from our sins, we must realize we cannot possibly contribute to this. And so we give up trusting in our own righteousness. And then Paul adds thirdly, according to the will of our God and Father. As if to say, let's also stop And consider whose perfect plan and design this is. That both our rescue and the means by which it was carried out were according to the will of our God and Father. I wonder, have you ever been involved in one of those uh, team building exercises at work? Or maybe maybe it was a school project or a project at university where, where you're with a group and a problem is presented to you, these were, the, these were the ones I really hated, where they'd say, kind of, you've got several hours to work out this thing. You, you knew that meant it was going to be a fairly big problem and would actually require some brain power, but you've got a few hours together as a group, work together, can you come up with a solution? Maybe you've got to come up with a product or we've got to come up with some kind of action plan. Well, imagine that the problem you were given was the greatest of all problems, the problem of our sin and separation from God. What kind of solution do you think we would come up with as human beings to solve this problem? I don't think we have to imagine too hard what we've come up with because we only have to look at all of the man-made religions in the world to see the kind of thing that we as human beings are prone to suggesting would solve this. 
a religion of human effort. A religion of making ourselves better and trying harder to make amends and climb our way back up to God. That again is why this false gospel that is now infiltrating the Galatian churches sounds so credible and even appealing because we like to think that we can add a bit of our own effort. That's what the gospel according to the will of man would look like all the time. That's what every false gospel pretty much ends up looking like. But it's not what the real gospel looks like. Because the real gospel has a very different author. It comes not from a human mind, but the will of our God and Father. Meaning simply this, God decided to show us grace. We didn't deserve it. We didn't ask for it. We didn't seek it. But God in his grace determined to seek us and find us. God in his kindness decided to show us completely undeserved love and to provide for us a way of being saved that, as Paul says in Romans 9.16, depends not on human will or effort, but solely on God who shows mercy. The gospel then, this is good news, is not what we would think would make a good religion or what we think would be a good way to get right with God. The gospel is not given to us as a project to try and improve and tinker with. The gospel is God's already perfect plan. It comes to us perfect and God's perfect initiative from first to last. And we will therefore look in vain at Paul's description here in the first five verses. We'll look in vain if we're trying to find any mention of what we must contribute to it. There is nothing here in these verses of what we must do, the role that we need to play in our rescue, there is simply nothing here. Not a single word about what we must do. All of this is simply about what God in Christ has done. The gospel is not about what we do for God, it is about what God has done for us. The gospel is God's plan. And therefore, fourthly and finally, Paul says, all glory goes to God which is how he ends the beginning of his letter. Verse 5, To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Tim Keller writes, This is the humbling truth that lies at the heart of Christianity. We love to be our own saviors. Our hearts love to manufacture glory for themselves, so we find messages of self-salvation extremely attractive. Whether they're religious Keep these rules and you earn eternal blessing. Or secular, grab hold of these things and you'll experience blessing now. The gospel comes and turns them all upside down. It says, you are in such a hopeless position that you need a rescue that has nothing to do with you at all. And then it says, God in Jesus provides a rescue which gives you far more than any false salvation your heart may love to chase. Paul reminds us that in the gospel we are, bought, we are both brought lower and raised higher than we can imagine. And the glory for that rightly all goes to our God and Father forever and ever. Amen. If only the Galatians had already stopped to contemplate these things again. If only they'd slowed down and reminded one another 
that all that they had already, the, the, the grace and peace that had been given to them had come through Jesus. If only they had reminded each other already of the inestimable price that had already been paid to rescue them. If only they had reminded one another of the glorious plan of the Father to willingly give his Son for them. If only they'd reminded themselves of the unchanging truth that God deserves all the glory and salvation and therefore it must be all his doing. If only they'd been treasuring these things already, then, then likely they wouldn't have so easily gone astray into thinking they needed to add good works and religion to their faith in order to be right with God. But that's what Paul is doing now in writing to them. They've gone a little way off course, but he's encouraging them now to stop and think again. Encouraging them to slow down and consider these things. And encouraging us to slow down as well. To stop and contemplate again as we study this letter together, the true nature of God's grace to us in Jesus. The simple but utterly life-changing truth that our salvation has nothing to do with what we can bring to it because it rests entirely and completely on what God in Christ has done. We, we know where this is going, this letter, don't we? Uh, we? We know what we're going to be immersing ourselves in over the coming months. Paul is, Paul is not worried about spoilers at the start of Galatians. He's happy just to litter them through his greeting. And those spoilers tell us this is all about grace. It's all about not what we can do for God, but what God has done for us and the life-transforming effect that that profound grace and freedom will inevitably have on our lives. So at the start of this new series, let's, why don't we resolve to pray and ask the Holy Spirit week after week to help us truly grasp the goodness and the freeness of grace that is so richly contained in this letter. Let's recognize there is also no truth that we are more easily prone to drifting away from. We can, we can think to ourselves, I know the gospel, it's kind of the ABC of the Christian life. But this is the thing we drift from so easily. Let's remember that. Let's remember there is nothing more deadly to our joy and deadly or, or robbing of God's glory than to lose sight of his grace. And if it is the case that some of us have already allowed our hearts and our affections to drift from this, if we're not as joy-filled and awestruck by the wonder of God's grace as we once were, let's rejoice that God intends to give us a whole season of Sundays in this particular letter where he's going to put on the oxygen mask of his grace again and again and again, week after week after week. This is God's gift to us. Wherever we find ourselves at the present time, we can come to him and ask that he would help us breathe in the fresh air of his grace deeply in the coming months so that we would journey through Galatians and come out of Galatians feeling, we pray, even more revived and refreshed and joyful and Christ-loving than perhaps we've ever been before. And may it all be for the glory and praise of his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. Lord, we thank you that you have given your gospel. You have given your gospel so clearly through your apostles. So this morning we can be certain of how it is a sinner can be saved. 
Father, we do pray that our souls would be stirred as we study this powerful letter together. Lord, may the rays of the gospel and of your grace shine deeply into our hearts. And may our lives be transformed in the coming weeks and months so that others will also be drawn to the wonderful gospel of your glorious grace. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.